This podcast is supported by VPLA, Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. Welcome to the Planning Exchange, where we interview built environment professionals who are doing interesting work beyond the ordinary. I'm Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by my colleague, Peter Jewell. Today, we're speaking with Jesse Suskin, the Head of Government Relations and Policy for Wing Australia at Google. Wing offers drone delivery. Their fleet of lightweight autonomous delivery drones can transport small packages directly from businesses to homes in minutes. Currently operating on three continents, wing delivery is safe, sustainable, and easy to integrate into existing delivery and logistics networks. Wing is part of Google's parent company, Alphabet. Wing has built a complete local delivery system that's uniquely suited for for autonomous delivery in densely populated environments. The system includes lightweight aircraft that can cruise forward at high speeds and then hover down to gently lower packages to precise locations. The most advanced flight navigation system in the industry that plans its own routes, executes missions in real times and can complete deliveries to small spaces and a light operational footprint, making the system quick and easy to set up. Welcome to the show, Jesse. Now, before we talk all things drones, prior to Google, you had a very long history, a very interesting career in various capacities of American politics. Do you want to talk us through this and I guess how this led to your current role at Google? Sure. Thank you, Jess. And and thank you both Jess and Peter for having me. Um, yep. Before I was working in drone delivery, which is a fascinating and a great space. And before I worked at Google, um, I did work for both the Australian and the U.S. government. So earlier in my career, um, I was working for the then governor of Massachusetts, Mitt Romney. Uh, most Australians would know him for later running for president, but I, I got my start in politics very early on uh, working in Massachusetts for the governor. And then I worked my way to the White House, um, where I was very fortunate and lucky uh, to have been afforded a role on the traveling staff there. So I ended up traveling the world either with or ahead of the president of the United States. Um, working on, on, on the travel of the president and some of those policies and communications. And one of the trips I took when I was at the White House was to Australia. It was to Sydney in 2007 for the APEC summit. And over time after that trip, I got to know my counterparts in the Australian government, seeing them at other world meetings, uh, seeing them at the UN or during bilateral visits in the United States. And I, I stayed friendly with uh, Team Australia, even when I was with the White House. And after I left the White House, I got a call from one of those people I had stayed in touch with, and he was based at the Australian Embassy in Washington, D.C., and he had just mentioned that there was a new ambassador, Australian ambassador, posted to Washington. It was a bit different than the others because of his political background, and that was Kim Beasley. Um, and he had said the ambassador had a, a unique understanding of American history and politics and could use some help uh, at the embassy during his posting. So. When I left the White House, I had the chance to work directly with Kim Beasley when he was Australia's ambassador to the US. Uh, I did that for a short amount of time and I loved it. Um, It was great to even do more in-depth work with Australia. And along the way, when I was uh, working with the Australians, I met my wife, who is Australian, who was working at that building at the time. Um, But after that work, I left left the Australian embassy and I went to work for Google in Washington, DC on a range of different public policy issues in the technology space. And after a number of years doing that, eventually like all Australians do, uh, and I understand that now, now that I'm living here, uh, my wife wanted to head back home to Australia with our young daughter. Uh, she wanted our daughter starting breakfast with Vegemite on toast, um, something we, we, we typically don't do in America. So Who, who can blame her? <laughs> so shortly after, uh, yeah, so we moved to Australia, moved over here with Google, working on state and territory 
policy issues uh, in the tech space. And while I was doing that work, I, get, I kept getting phone calls from the Ling team as they were starting their investment and delivery operations in Australia. Uh, and they had questions about different states and territories and policies here. And over time, uh, in, in working with them in a helpful way, uh, they eventually asked me to join and join the wing team and, and start the policy function here in Australia, which I did about five years ago. And it's been a blast. I was really lucky to be working. When you work at Google, a lot of the tech issues are cutting edge and the policies are really exciting. And I didn't think it could be more exciting than that until I started working in the drone space uh, in the delivery space where these policy issues have never been fronted before, not just in Australia, but anywhere in the world. So um, I, I, I've been very lucky to have some interesting jobs for different governments. And uh, I've been in this drone space here in Australia for the past five years. Uh, Jesse, depending on your answer to my question, I'm not sure if we can take this interview any further, but what do you think of Vegemite? I'm not there. I'm a dual citizen. <laughs> Australian. Um, I do a lot. <laughs> I love it here. I'm thrilled to be an Australian citizen. I still can't understand why the Australian people ruin a perfectly good piece of toast. Uh, that, 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 I think that's a fairly polite answer, Jesse. So, 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 All right, interview so, over. Interview so, over. So, uh, that, now, Jesse, can you tell us a little history of drone delivery? Um, how and when did it start? Sure. Look, drone delivery, it's a drones aren't a new concept per se, you know, aviation isn't a new concept, but the idea of using small aircraft to deliver packages, um, the idea of using drones to do a lot of the things that are happening now, that is relatively new. In the drone delivery space, where, where obviously Wing is a leader in the industry, um, we've been doing work in Australia since um, going back a number of years. Wing started in 2012. A number of other companies uh, soon followed in the drone delivery space. Um, and it's really been a, a walk, crawl, run approach to get things off the ground. Um, aviation isn't new. Airplanes aren't new. Propulsion isn't new. A lot of the concepts that we're using in drone delivery aren't new. But the idea of shrinking an airplane from the size of things people would be typically, you know, associate with airplanes, say jetliners or even propeller planes, shrinking those down into smaller airframes to do things like deliver packages, that's only been happening for about 10 years. Um, so it's not that the technology is new, but we've taken a lot of different concepts in aviation, kind of put them together to get to where we are today. So it's, it's a new concept. We've added new technologies and systems to drones to enable them to do delivery. But um, in its most basic form, what we're doing at Wing, the plan, you know, the system you described earlier, Jess, where we're using this fleet of autonomous aircraft. Our drone is five kilograms. It's made of styrofoam. It has a wing like when you look at it, it looks like a very small airplane. It's about a meter by a meter. It has upward facing propellers because we take off and land like a helicopter would. It has front facing propellers because we cruise at about 110 kilometers per hour when we're flying to our destination. Those concepts aren't new, but kind of putting them together uh, into an airframe and adding some of the technologies we use to it to do what we're doing. It's only about 10 years old. So it's, it's a new novel industry, but um, already it's, it's literally metaphorically really starting to take off, particularly here in Australia. It feels as though, um, as you say, the technology isn't new, but um, the idea of using drones as um, delivery mechanisms is, is obviously a very new concept, particularly um, in Victoria where we're based. Um, to my knowledge, I don't think we've got any real delivery systems happening yet with drones here. Um, you can tell me otherwise if that's not the case. Yeah. But um, I guess where where does the drone delivery 
system sit now? Is it still going through initial early learning stages or does it really depend on each state? It's, it's a little of both. I'd say of that crawl, walk, run, at least for wing, we're in a pretty fast walk now. So um, we currently have delivery operations in the Gungahlin area of Canberra up north. And we have delivery operations in Logan City in parts of the Gold Coast. And we just added a new service in the Springfield Ipswich area of Southeast Queensland. Um, so we're only in a few, we're in obviously one territory in one state right now. And that's for a few reasons. Part of it is this is a very highly regulated industry. So we need multiple permissions from the Commonwealth government, sometimes from the state government, even from the local level of government to do what we're doing. Um, we can't just pop up like a rideshare service, show up with cars and start the next day. We need, a, it's very highly regulated. In a lot of ways from a regulatory perspective, we might as well be using a 380 deliver packages. Um, it took years for us to make a safety case to CASA, which is the Civil Aviation Authority here. Um, we have to make cases to the, the city government, the LGAs we're operating in to, to be able to build the facilities we need to, to enable drone delivery. So there's a lot of different steps along the way. And then even outside of the regulatory piece, because this is such a new technology, um, we, we have to do a lot of community outreach. And that's not required by the government per se, but just as a new technology um, to, to answer questions people might have about drones generally about our operations, we invest a lot in in-person outreach before we start operating. So there's a number of steps along the way we have to take before we can start operations. Um, but, you know, we're, we're really well out of a trial phase. We've been in Queensland for just about four years now uh, with a lot of that work centralizing in Logan City. We, we fly over hundreds of thousands of people every day. We do thousands of package deliveries every week. So the service is pretty far along, certainly from where we started in our most early days in Australia. Um, in terms of other states, I think there's real potential, not just for Wing, but other companies as well to offer a really good and unique service across different states. It just so happens we, we did our first deliveries after Canberra, which was um, a great market to start in because we thought we were solving for something there and our regulators were there. The next state we went to was Queensland and we took the learnings from Canberra to open that Queensland market in Logan. Um, and I, we, we definitely have our eye on other cities, other states, other markets, and so do other drone delivery companies. There's um, although there's not delivery in Victoria, as far as I know, there's another drone delivery company in Victoria called Swoop Arrow. Their headquarters is in Victoria. They do their assembly in Victoria. Um, they do more middle mile deliveries and more regional and rural areas with a focus on medical delivery. But nonetheless, um, Victoria is certainly a state that I, I think is really open to innovation, open to even emerging aviation technology, which they've been pretty vocal about. And I think it, it won't be too far along before whether our company or another is, is their operating delivery service. I think the um, the limited exposure that we've probably had in Victoria has been uh, limited to, I think there was a, and Pete, you probably remember this, um, an article or a, a video that was going around in the media a little while ago about a guy that had um, sent his drone to pick up his sausage and bread from, from Bunnings. So <laughs> I think that was the extent of it. I, that might be, that might be the case, but Peter, mm. <laughs> go ahead. Sorry, no, no, Jesse, I, I'm on my third drone. I've I've crashed one and lost one over the water. But uh, so I, I love the technology. But it it must have been great to get out of the lab and off practice airfields, uh, and to get out into the field and test in real world conditions. Uh, you mentioned four years in Logan, and we'll come to that in a moment. But it must have been great to get into test in real world conditions. It was, and I want to be clear with test, by the time we're flying in the real world, 
And actually this goes to very important and legitimate questions we get from the community. Um, when we are going to the real world, we're not testing in the sense that the airplane is safe. It's been certified safe, right, by the regulator. All the testing of the aircraft, that's happening in labs and in fields. What we're bringing out to the community when we offer delivery service, it's not an unsafe aircraft or system, right? It, it's, it's been certified as safe at the highest levels by, you know, CASA has a, a world-renowned reputation for aviation safety. They have a very high bar for safety. So even before we can fly our drone over people, as an example, um, we, we have to pass a number of certifications and risk assessments and tests um, and workshops to be able to even get to that point. So um, I think when people hear, oh, we're testing our drones, they, <laughs> I don't want them to think they have to take duck and cover in the neighborhood because we're flying yeah. drones around them. What we are testing, to your point, what we're piloting and trialing is how would people use a service like this? How will merchants meet their customers if they can meet them in just a few minutes by air? How will people use last mile delivery if they don't have to get into their car and drive to the store for a loaf of bread or a packet of children's Panadol? It's those types of things we're doing for the first time. And we've had a lot of success um, really everywhere we've brought this and, and particularly in Australia. We, Wing operates in Europe. Wing operates in the United States, but Australia is our largest delivery market. And it's it's because I think we're solving for a few things, not unique to Australia per se, but more amplified here in Australia. So, you know, we're in Logan as an example. That's Logan's the 10th largest LGA in the country. It's one of the fastest growing cities in Queensland. It's one of the fastest growing cities in Australia, even. There's a lot of residential growth happening there before the infrastructure catch, catches up. So, you know, in, in Logan, we deliver for a number of merchants. We deliver for DoorDash, we deliver for Coles. If you need a loaf of bread, if, if you realize you're making school lunch in the morning, you're out of bread for that school lunch. If you live in a lot of parts of Logan, you're not walking distance to the shop. That means if you need that bread, you're getting in your car, you're driving to the store, picking it up and driving home. Um, if you live in Logan, you probably live in a home with two working parents and you're probably not working in Logan, you're probably commuting into Brisbane to work. So all of a sudden that loaf of bread, time is of the essence. The infrastructure might not have caught up to make that drive easier quick. The store might not even been built yet near, you know, the center might not be finished near where you live. So um, we found ourselves solving for something very quickly. That is a real, I know sometimes people might say, oh, it's trivial, oh, you're just delivering bread. But actually, if you think about that car trip coming off the road during rush hour and the time saved for that parent, um, even for the store, they love solving, you know, good stores meet the needs of their customers. They like meeting their customers and solving a problem for them using drones that they might not have been able to previously. So um, we're solving for things like that. And that's what we've learned mainly over time in a place like Logan that, um, you know, delivering to people in single family homes in the sprawling suburbs, which is a real thing in Australia. If you think about New South Wales, the Melbourne area, if you think of all the capital cities, you have a lot of residential built just outside the CBD that goes, goes on for a long way. You have a lot of traffic in these areas and um, you have a lot of homes with young families in these areas. And, and so we've kind of met the right customer. I think we've, we've solved for the right thing. And along the way, we've taken a lot of cars off the road. You know, if we're, we do, again, on a busy day, we'll do a thousand deliveries in a single day. If we're taking a thousand deliveries away from that shopping center uh, by deliveries that would have been made by car, either by a delivery driver making it or you yourself getting in the vehicle. That starts to add up quickly, particularly on the arterial roads. So um, we've learned a lot in that four year period and we've evolved over time in the service we offer and where we put our infrastructure. And 
you know, even if you think about those four years, a lot, a lot of that was COVID. So even the profile of our customer changed um, over time as well. We thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. I wanted to ask you as well, Jesse, about sharing of data and disclosure of data. What kind of relationships has Wing developed with the local councils? Yeah, so we need, you know, at the at the most, it sounds basic, but most local councils have never had to consider drone delivery before. So I'll dip into your space a little bit in the planning space. Um, when we're in the air, we fall under Commonwealth jurisdiction, whether we're a meter in the air, a hundred meters in the air, you know, anything flying is, is takes the responsibility of the Commonwealth, but we have to take off and land, right, somewhere. So um, that's really where the cities come in. And um, at the earliest levels of our thinking and our planning, we, we, we engage in conversations with city government to make sure we're putting our drone delivery facilities. They're very lightweight. They're not hard to set up. I'd mentioned our drones only weigh five kilograms. We're not talking about a lot of infrastructure. But nonetheless, if we want to put drones at a shopping center, there is a planning consideration for the city there in that sense. So in our earliest conversations, when we think about where we will be offering a service, a lot of those conversations are in depth with cities. So the cities have a good feeling and understanding for us at at the most earliest stages of our most earliest plannings, because ultimately we'll need permission from the city to operate. And over the course of those conversations, we do get more into transport policy. because again, this isn't, you know, it usually this starts novel, but eventually the cities do want to know what some of the benefits will be for their communities, not just the people using the service. And for our tens of thousands of customers, they love the service and they use it, it's great. But, um, you know, the cities we, we, where we operate in, they want to also know what the benefits of drone delivery will be for the larger community. I think they're curious generally what cities of the future will look like and how drones play into that. So we do share a lot of information with the cities, with the policy areas of, transport planning. You know, in Queensland, we have a good relationship with the policy team at Roads and Transport there, who they will be one of the first states in the world because there is scaled drone delivery happening where they can actually observe what this looks like. Um, so we do share that information. We, we do a lot of policy workshopping. We do a lot of forecasting, um, not just what wing delivery drones might do for a city, but, but when this becomes more universal and when there's more than just wing operating in that city, um, you know, what some of those benefits will be like. So it's, although we're, our scale is days of our service, when they're considering giving us approvals to operate, they're really diving deep into these things. So we do work pretty closely on policy issues around things like cars off the road, emissions reduction, um, what future infrastructure might look like in a, in a world where there is more drone delivery. So those are all questions we're, we're kind of jointly tackling right now. So it's really, I guess, an education piece for the local governments, because I imagine they would be um, fairly receptive and probably fairly excited about the concept. Um, but uh, as you sort of mentioned, getting them to understand what it means from a planning perspective could be a little bit of an education process. Yeah. And the cities that are more open to it definitely raise their hands early on. So, um, you know, one of the reasons we looked at Queensland for major investment was the state of Queensland has, they had a drone, before we got there, they had a drone strategy. So they kind of had a vision for 
having a drone ecosystem in the state. And they had a vision for one day having drone delivery in Queensland. And that vision was just further ahead than the other states in Australia at the time we were looking to make that investment back in 2019. So the state had already sent a pretty clear signal to industry, hey, this is something, there's real issues to tackle here and understand, but we're open to doing that. And that was a great signal for a company like mine to say, okay, well, that's a good sign that the policymakers in the state think drone delivery could be helpful. Let's start that conversation. And then in, in, in those initial conversations with the state, they then introduced us to a few LGAs who said, hey, these LGAs, you know what? If when you think you can deliver things quickly and you think you'll do well in areas where there's traffic and where there's high residential or rapid residential growth, maybe talk to these four LGAs. And, and, and we did just that. And then eventually in our conversations with Logan City, we realized, okay, this, there's a sweet spot here. We're going to be solving for something here. There's fast growth. Um, we have a city who, I mean, they have they obviously have a planning regime, no different than any other LGA, but they were already thinking about ways to apply that regime to a company like ours. It was just really a good fit from, from a community and a policy perspective for a forward-leaning company like ours and a forward-leaning LGA like Logan and a forward-leaning state like Queensland. And then kind of what happens is all the layers of government came together because this, again, was so new. So um, the Commonwealth, because they regulate all, everything we do, truly, we need multiple permissions from the Commonwealth, they start conversations with the state and the city to say, okay, uh, you know, Wing is approved to operate in this way. Um, what aren't we thinking about? And then, you know, there were, there were pretty early on conversations amongst the Department of Infrastructure, which has oversight. The Department of Vision, <laughs> it's a huge agency, let me get this right. The Department of Infrastructure, Transport, Regional Development, Communications, and the Arts. I think I got them all there, but um, you know they have they have they have oversight for Commonwealth transport policy. They have oversight of aviation policy, and they started conversations with Logan about okay, you know our department issues permissions around things like noise. Um, they wanted to understand Logan City and what the community might tolerate there from a noise perspective before they issued a noise permission. Even today, four years in, the conditions of the noise permission we have. Um, both the Commonwealth and the city of Logan check in quarterly to make sure we're operating in a neighborly way that the noise complaints are within guidelines or checks and you know that the city is comfortable with. So it's, it's really been an exercise. You know, it doesn't always work out that the Commonwealth, the city and the state all get along to, for, for a policy outcome. It's been our experience that so far where we've been operating, that's been the case. And that's been really exciting. It means we have really good partners at every level of government because we are a new technology and it's, it's, it's a great way to get something like this started where, where every level of government has curiosity, has high standards and, and wants to work together to you know, achieve universal outcomes. And, and Jesse, for the naysayers out there, because I know um, this conversation has been had many times um, in my circles as well. Um, the idea of drone delivery is that it would be a complementary uh, service to your traditional town centres and um, strip shopping centres and so forth. It's not a replacement of those services. We still want to see shopping centres be developed and um, town centres be developed in their traditional way. This is just a complementary added service. Our, our payload is, is you know, 1.2 kilograms. So we don't replace the entire shop. We replace the butter you forgot in between shops. We replace the last minute items that you for, <laughs> that you just ran out of milk is a great example you, we deliver a lot of we deliver a lot of hot chooks it's a good example of an item that you might run into the store midweek to grab it's affordable it's best served hot it can feed a family 
we deliver those types of things. What you're not going to use, or what we don't see our customers using, it'd be a silly proposition, would be <laughs> for us to deliver 100 kilograms of groceries, you know, 100 times, right? It's not a mismatch of a vehicle. A mismatch of a vehicle is using a, sing a four door car to move one loaf of bread, if you really think about it. You wouldn't use a yeah, city absolutely. bus every day to move one person. It wouldn't, it would be a mismatch. You wouldn't, you would use a car to move four people. You'd move, use a car to move a lot of things. But every single day, tens of thousands of times in our cities, you have single cars moving a hamburger and chips, a loaf of bread, a package of Panadol. That's where the vehicle mismatch comes in. Center, we, we don't see this as being at all the end of centers. And actually, we operate from multiple centers. So I'll, I'll give you an example. We operate at Grand Plaza, which is a center with 110 stores in Logan. It's, it's owned by Vicinity. Um, and we've been there for just under a year. We do thousands of deliveries from that location every week. I'm there a lot. It is always jam-packed. And But we do really well. The, the drones take off and land from the rooftop. So we're using space that just wasn't being used for anything else at the center. And we're delivering for the merchants below us. But we're delivering things, I think for the center, you know, I don't want to speak for them, but their, value, their parking spaces are very valuable because it's limited and they're always busy. So if you have a car that was parking to run in to get one thing, and you can reduce that vehicle trip to the center, that spot is then open for somebody doing a more broad shot, maybe visiting multiple stores as an example, right? So there's, I, I would even argue there's value in the particular, there's value at every, every step of the way. There's value for the consumer to get these items quickly. There's value in their time and their cost savings. And, and there's, there's the reduction of that car trip means the roads are a bit more safe. When you start to add this up and aggregate it over time, um, you start to reduce, in our case so far, millions of vehicle kilometers. But as you scale it in Australia, you know, there's a study by Accenture that shows if you take just 4%, 4%, a very small amount of last mile delivery and move it to the air. So if all the 96% of shopping is built at the centers and you take 4% of that to the air, you reduce over 2 billion vehicle kilometers. That's hundreds of thousands of tons of CO2. That's, that's dozens of car accidents not happening when those vehicle kilometers reduce. So it adds up pretty quickly, but, but that's just looking at a very small proportion of deliveries that are mismatched by vehicle anyway. You know, I don't think, I do not think we are the last mile delivery solution for everyone. If you have a van with 300 parcels following a good route, that's a really good use of a van, right? It's when you have a, a single hamburger in a, in a car going four kilometers across town, that's maybe not the best use of that vehicle. So th that's how we see it. But I, I, I'm very bullish on sensors. I think they'll keep innovating. I think we're an example of how they're innovating. Um, when you add drone delivery for your merchants and your customers, that is an innovation at the center. So I think they'll innovate over time, but I don't see them going away. Jesse, just, just, just to go back a bit, um, you, you mentioned that you do it for, you, you deliver for Coles. Can you just quickly give um, our listeners an idea of, I'm the customer, I log in somewhere, I order something and I give my address. <laughs> and is there a special uh, option for drone delivery to my house or is it just for people in certain LGA areas how does it work just run us through I need yeah. to order something you get the order you pack it you fly it and it lands on my driveway is that how can you just put some words to that yeah absolutely so are we operate in a few different ways so you know I'd mentioned we deliver for Coles and DoorDash in the instance of DoorDash we are just built into their app 
So if you live where we offer delivery service and your home is eligible for drone delivery, and by eligible, I mean, we and, and Pete, we don't land, we just hover. So essentially we hover at seven, I'll walk you through the whole process. Let me start from the beginning, I'll, I'll, I'll do it quickly. Right, an order comes in, that might come through somebody else's app, that might come through the wing app, but ultimately an order is placed. We're not the merchant, we're just delivering for the respective merchant. Um, but that order can be placed in a number of ways, either through a, a, the merchant's own application or through one that Wing has. Um, if you live in a if you live in a home and you have a two meter radius that's clear of trees or power lines, that could be in your front yard or your backyard. You're eligible for delivery. You know, if you have a lot of if you have a swimming pool in your back and a lot of tree cover in your front, we'd have difficulty delivering to your home. But for the most part, to the homes we're delivering for, that's not especially single family homes. That's not you know, that's pretty common for people to either in their front or backyard have that kind of space. You place the order, um, it's packaged, and then it's loaded onto our drone. And then our drone will take off, whether from a shopping center, from a coal store, our, our coal, the location we have in the Gold Coast, the drones sit at that coal store exclusively. And the drones take off and land from that coal store. In the case of Grand Plaza, the drones take off from the roof. So it's a little different in each way we build. But um, the drone will take off from the site, will fly 110 kilometers to the location at about 40, 50, 60 meters above the ground. And once we get to the location, we'll descend from 60 meters to about seven meters. And on a tether, we will lower the package to the ground and it will automatically release the package. And that, that these transactions are essentially happening through apps. The drone is flying itself. It's flying autonomously. We're not landing. We don't want our customers having to interact with the drone for what I think are obvious reasons. Um, so that drone will hover, lower the package, go back to the base, recharge and do it all over again. Um, but yes, essentially, if you're ordering, you're ordering through an app, you're putting in your address, the app will tell you if it's safe for delivery, you don't pick your own delivery area. If there's more than one safe area, you could essentially pick front yard or backyard, but, but Wing will determine the safest place for that drone to hover and lower the package. Jesse, you, you mentioned the, the evolution of drones and how airspace is very tightly controlled in the States. I think it's the FAA there and CASA in Australia. And I'm sure all the other countries have got mm -hmm. similar. How how much of a challenge was it for the air authorities to sort of, who are very safety orientated, um, but also used to big objects in the sky? How hard was it for them to come to terms with what drones represent? In, yeah. in, sorry, two minutes or less. Sure, I'll use I'll use CASA as the example because we're in Australia, but you're absolutely right. It's the FAA in the United States there's an agency EASA in Europe. So aviation, there's a high bar for safety for aviation and for very good reason, as you can imagine. So, right, I mean, we're talking about things flying. There's air risk and ground risk when you're flying an airplane. You don't want the people on the plane hurt. You don't want the people on the ground hurt. So th the high bar for safety is there. And CASA takes that same approach with drones and with our service. So it's not that the level, the standard of safety drops for what we're doing, but obviously what we're flying is radically different than you know, an A380. So um, CASA, they, well, they kept the high bar for safety. They were also forward leaning and saying, and having more of an outcomes-based approach. So they didn't say you have to do all of these things in order to be certified. They said, you have to meet this level of safety, both in the air and on the ground to be able to operate, which left a company like ours, different opportunities to explore different solutions to meet that, that, that safety case. So our drone, for example, is made of styrofoam, a, a bicycle helmet-esque styrofoam. It weighs five kilograms and it's frangible. 
to be clear, not that we've ever just fallen out of the sky, no different than most planes would never fall up. Just planes don't fall out of the sky every day here. It's not to say that would never happen, but we have to make a safety case that it would be extremely rare, like a traditional airplane. Um, but you know, we're able to show ground risk in by using styrofoam and not you know heavy metal as one example of, of how we build our aircraft. We have to show air safety. We have to deconflict from any air risk. Um, so we fly very low, right? Traditional, and we fly away from airports. So the areas we're operating in are uh, 3.2 nautical miles away from airports, and for good reason, right? Because we don't want a, a, a 737 pilot on final approach to the airport having to worry about drones. That's not to say we can't operate and coexist safely near airports, but we just don't do that at this point. That's part of that crawl, walk, run approach. So today, you know, we fly um, we fly below 120 meters, which puts us well clear of traditional fixed wing traffic. Uh, we, we monitor ADSB, we deconflict from things like helicopters, which might, it's rare, but nonetheless might be operating in that lower level airspace. Um, and and we've, we fly in a way and we've built a system and designed a system that meets the safety bar CASA has mandated we meet, but we, we've, we've, we've taken different approaches in how to meet that. So CASA's done a really good job of differentiating between traditional aviation and drone aviation while keeping the same kind of high standard for safety. And that's been an important big step because traditionally aviation regulators, it's it's an industry that's been here for a while. There's a high bar for safety. So sometimes those changes don't, they're not always as forward leaning as people in industry would like to see, but we've been pleased here in Australia with, um, with how CASA has done their work. It's taken us years to meet that bar and years of work with them, but we're at the point now where again, we can operate you know, in a pretty large, urban suburban area. Um, we can operate safely without disrupting aviation, without causing ground risk. And, and I think that's what the public, both the flying public, the traditional aviation industry, and just people in communities would expect if, if the government's going to allow a service like this. A slightly left of field question, Jesse. I remember years ago, um, someone presenting to a company that I was working for about um, the use of drones in, in the work that we were doing in town planning and um, landscape design, and um, mentioning that a lot of drones um, are being, or, or the, the, the drones at the time were being attacked by native birds within Australia um, because they were threatened by their presence in the sky. Is that, has that been an issue um, that you've come across? No, and we, we do a lot of work. We have an ornithologist who advises us every step of the way. There's obviously bird life everywhere we operate in Australia. You know, the magpie is a great example of kind of a unique bird life here in Australia that would differ elsewhere. So from the start of our operations, we've worked with an ornithologist who gives us advice on different ways to operate safely. So we're not encountering that. Um, before we go to a new area, we'll review all the birds in that area and we'll, we'll, we'll mark areas to avoid flying in for that reason. I mean, traditionally, because we're flying in residential areas, we're not encountering, you know, eagles or, or, or some of the some of the birds that might traditionally be threatened by drones because we're not operating in the we're not operating in the bush we're not operating in the countryside nonetheless that's not to say there aren't birds we have to account for in residential areas it just means mm -hmm. more of our flying is happening with birds that are accustomed to residential areas but we've never you know I, what I can say is there's <laughs> we did have an encounter in Canberra once where there was a raven during nesting season and the nest for this raven was kind of in a peculiar area and we were coming in, I'd mentioned we hover when we deliver. 
And during this nesting period, this raven had flown around back to our drone, grabbed onto the back and shook it a bit. The drone was just fine. The raven was fine. You know, our ornithologist happens to be in Canberra. He found the nest later that day and the, everybody was okay. And, you know, we stopped flying in that area during nesting season. We resumed mm -hmm. afterwards and everything's fine. But um, no, like we're not, you know, when we're cruising along, we've, our drones are made of styrofoam, so we would know, right? And, and mm -hmm. we're not getting reports from the communities we're in that the streets are full of bird carcasses from operation. <laughs> as far as I know, we've never, you know, just flown into a bird, right, while we're cruising at that speed. It's because we're flying at heights that are recommended to us. We're flying in areas that are recommended that won't be disruptive to birds. And now we have that four-year track record. That same ornithologist has done a lot of work on monitoring our operations, um, well, you know, in real time, if you will, to do regular observations and continually provides advice to us. You know, as part of our social license, I think we have to be safe as we covered. The community would not accept an unsafe operation. You know, there's there's areas like noise and, and privacy where we have to operate in a way that is accepted. And I think, you know, AVA, uh, avian life, bird life generally, we have to operate in a way that's respectable, respectable to that as well. Otherwise, I think we'd have a social license issue. Albeit, and you know, if for, and we have a lot of employees who let study birds and like birds and love nature too, and, and we, we really do want to be good stewards of the environment. Um, in some ways, we're probably safer for birds in that we don't have bird strike like traditional aviation. You know, you, you have a lot of cars who strike birds all the time. We've been able to avoid that. So I'd argue, even by taking some of these car trips off the road, um, over time, we might find this is safer for birds than, than other means of transportation as well. Mm, yeah. Um, so, Jesse, drone deliveries bring forward the concept of zoning within the sky. Obviously, um, the, the heights that you're operating or that your drones are operating are very low. Um, but, for example, things like delivery corridors, emergency flight paths, passenger routes and so forth, all taking consideration um, of the sensitive areas beneath and above. This is something we briefly touched on in an episode <clears throat> with Adam Cohen from Berkeley. Who would be responsible for this if this was a concept that was um, taken on board? Would it be a local council or would it be a federal aviation authority? It would be federal. It would have to be federal. I think in Australia, and that's really because safety is paramount. So safety would have to be the most important policy consideration. And, and that falls into the Commonwealth. So it would be difficult for a city to, you know, make make airspace recommendations that might conflict with safety ones, as an example. So ultimately, and, and the rules will have to be consistent and the same across everywhere. Um, and that, that is a standard tradition of aviation. I think that will continue. That being said, once you go outside of the safety realm, there are policy considerations. And you know, the ambulance one's a great example, right? Um, if you're on the road today, you know, it's a norm of the road that if you have an ambulance behind you with its lights and sirens on, right, you're going to yield to that ambulance. You know, nobody would disagree with that. It's, it's, it's not a, <laughs> when you step back, it's a pretty simple concept. Get out of the way of an ambulance that is showing it needs to go somewhere quickly, right? Um, there's no reason why that won't happen in the skies either. It will just happen digitally. So um, the idea of needing a safety, a dedicated safety corridor in the same way, in, uh, you know, on a highway, you don't have a dedicated ambulance lane that is only for ambulances all the time. Um, you wouldn't necessarily, I, I, our company wouldn't advocate for that in the sky either. We would advocate for the most common sense approach would be, okay, if, if our delivery drone has grocery on it and the drone next to us has, you know, a blood sample on it going to a lab, we will yield to that. Or if there's a police, whatever it might be. And those aren't difficult concepts to program into 
the autonomy of the delivery system, whether one we're using or one uh, other people are using. So um, it will be the federal government, the Department of Infrastructure, the larger, I'm gonna start saying, if I reference them again, just Department of Infrastructure, that much larger department I referenced, Infrastructure, Transport. They're already looking at these right now from a policy point of view. And they're working very closely with states and cities to get inputs on their thinking behind this and what the rules of the sky will be, if you will. Um, but ultimately, all those rules will have to fit into a safety application and that sits with CASA. So they're important considerations. I think for this to work well, the Commonwealth will have to do a good job of listening to cities and states to understand those inputs. I'm seeing that work happen in real time between the Department of Cities right now, which is great. Um, hopefully it continues because again, especially because this is so new, I think it will be the only way that you know, an industry like this really takes off. So Jesse, we're really talking about a model code for the sky, um, almost, it's not like a planning scheme. That's a lot of our listeners will understand planning schemes and codes, but it's like a model code for the air, taking yeah. into account lots of things on the ground and I, where yeah. important facilities are, sort of health facilities, all that sort of thing, right? Correct. I think even though this is an advanced technology and it's very exciting and it's very innovative and it changes a lot, I always urge people What's interesting about my, I mentioned in my background earlier, I don't have an aviation background. I don't actually have a drone background either. And our company's done a good job of taking people with traditional aviation backgrounds. We're flying an airplane. Obviously we have some of the best aerodynamic engineers in the world, the best software writers in the world working on some of these things. Paired up with people who don't, because I would advocate that just because this is an advanced technology, doesn't mean the solution has to be overly complicated. We've seen on the roads, the solution that exists today has worked well in society. It's one that people understand. And it hasn't required a really complex, if you overthought that solution of, of you know, moving ambulances, we might have roads with dedicated ambulance lanes everywhere, right? And there would probably be an over, it might be an, a really big way to solve a problem that has a more straightforward answer. And I would argue for the air, it's going to be similar, certainly in the beginning, but I, there are some people that advocate for really complex solutions for things like this. I would always advocate for what is the outcome you are looking for and then talk about the solutions versus prescribing the outcome. So when I hear dedicated lanes in the sky, that feels very prescribed to me. I'd almost rather have a conversation first saying, what are you hoping to achieve? And once you understand what the outcome should be from a societal level, I think you could have government, you could have industry come together saying, okay, well, these are the different ways to do it. And what might be the safest way out of all the options? What might be the most practical way? What, you know, I, I think that's probably the better way to approach some of this stuff. I wouldn't let drones or new technology get in the way of what might be very, you know, that the aura of that get in the way of what might be very straightforward, practical, simple solutions. Jesse, can we borrow you as a planning policy wonk? I was I about to she, say that. <laughs> I, I think, yes, we need that sort of first principles approach yeah. to so much we're involved in. Uh, Jesse, there's a lot of legacy sort of issues that, Anyway, so over over complications. <laughs> yeah, I love that first principles approach. And mm. uh, Jesse, a real issue is, of course, noise. Um, the the and noise. Noise and always, privacy, probably. Well, well, yeah. well. Maybe we do noise first, but sure. but but you're working to lower the noise. That's sort of the that's the golden challenge, isn't it? I mean, it's to, to it's reduce it all the time. Yeah, look, we have to fly, right? So, you know, look, we fly over again, hundreds of thousands of people every day. We don't have hundreds of thousands of customers. We have tens of thousands of customers, which means 
for us to go from the shopping center we're delivering from to say your home, we might fly over 50 homes of non-customers, right? And, and we really have to account for the entirety of the community, not just the people using the service. So we would argue the entirety of the community will benefit from cars off the road, reduced emissions, things like that. But the entirety of the community might not want to hear our drones every day. And that's not an unreasonable expectation. Um, How loud are the drones though? Are they? So, so we have a bit of a journey on noise. When we first started, this is going back five years ago, when we started some of our early trials. And again, when I say trials, I don't mean testing the airplane. I mean, offering trialing of service. We did get feedback on noise. And it was where we started. We didn't know, we didn't particularly think it was all that loud, but we, we, we got feedback from the first community we delivered in that the drone was too noisy. And what was interesting is that, you know, some of that feedback was, I, I don't, I think people with noise feedback, it's not unreasonable to have that thought. If you're inside your house and you hear a drone flying overhead, you didn't ask or, you know, you, you might not have signed up for that, right? And that's fair enough. But when that noise feedback came in, we really worked with the people who were providing that. A subset of those people were willing to have like a real honest conversation about what was bothering them. That was really helpful for a company like ours. So once we actually had real noise, if all we did was counted noise complaints, I would have gone to our engineering team saying, hey, we have a noise problem. And what they might've done is only reduced the decibel level. Because if you go to an engineer saying, I need you to fix this. And I went to our engineer saying, hey, the drone is too noisy. They might have said, okay, well, we're at X amount of decibels and let's reduce it, right? But, and, and actually working with the community to understand what the noise feedback was, we were hearing feedback about the pitch, the frequency of the drone. It was like at a high pitch and that's what was annoying people. It wasn't necessarily the, the sound power level, the volume of it, it was the pitch of it, right? So early on, we spent a lot of time really digging into and trying to understand specific noise feedback. And it got us to the place we're at today where we are flying a drone, we're not really getting all that much noise feedback. That's not to say we don't get it from time to time we do get complaints. We have a noise regulator. We have to fly over and we fly with a, no, a specific noise permission. So it's not to say people never make noise complaints, but it's really few and far between now because this was a long answer to your question, Jess. Because the drone we're flying, it's very likely that if we fly directly over your house now, you wouldn't hear it flying over your house because we've gotten the average decibel level in that cruise mode to average at 43 decibels. So, you know, a car driving by is louder than that. So that probably means while you might hear a car driving by your house out front, it's very unlikely. I mean, look, it depends on the house, the installation, things like that, but overwhelmingly, it means that if we are flying over your house and you're inside your house, it's unlikely you would realize that. And that became a standard we, we really had to strive for, especially when we started doing high volumes. And that, that really peaked at COVID, as you can imagine. So all of a sudden, people found themselves at home. Everyone's working from home, everyone's living at home, everyone's doing everything at home for weeks at a time. And, and we, as you can imagine, we're doing a lot of delivery because people were at home um, and there was a lot of volume happening. And, and that type of feedback came in. That's when we, we, we really worked towards building the drone we have today, which meets that standard. So noise is a real issue. I think it's a valid one. Um, what I will say is it's unknown for most people. Most people don't know what, drone noise really sounds like because drones typically aren't flying over homes. Um, and what we've found is once people experience it, there's a lot of fear in the unknown and that's fair. I really do think that's fair enough. But you know, we operate in, I'll give an example, a, probably a, a good example here. We operate in a town in Virginia in the United States called Christiansburg. 
it's this it's the home to Virginia Tech, which is a humongous research university. Um, in the it's one of the biggest ones in the country doing the type of work they do. Christiansburg is very much a college town, and because they're a research university, they had the ability to survey the community before we started operating and after. And once we started operating and people understood this is safe, they understood how we operate. So they had good answers to their privacy questions. They could understand the noise thing practically, not just dreaming what this might sound like. They could understand the safety piece. Um, acceptance goes right up very quickly. So what we, what we typically see is before we start flying, about half the community likes the concept of drone delivery, even if they don't know about Wing or us. But in the Virginia case, and this was a study done by the university, it wasn't done by our team. Um, you know, they're a research university, they were just looking, they were curious what the outcome would be. They found that over 80% of people after they actually had started having operations found it acceptable. And it's not that we were delivering to 80% of the community, it was just that 80% of the community thought, you know what, I'm, I'm satisfied when it comes to noise or, or safety or privacy or what, what the other issues might be. So um, it's, it's, it's a little bit chicken in the egg. I think questions people have about noise are absolutely valid. They have about safety are absolutely valid. They're really important questions, especially with the new technology. But um, you know, we've been in Logan for four years. The amount of noise feedback we get there is pretty limited now, again, considering we fly over so many people so many times. Um, but it took, it, there was a journey there. You know, early in our earliest deliveries we were doing in Australia, we were operating a drone that was too loud. And we, we didn't only have to reduce the decibel level, we had to work on the frequency, the pitch as well. So that that's part of our journey on noise, for sure. And so what about privacy? I imagine that one, that issue is probably to a certain extent, almost more difficult because it's very subjective. Yeah. Well, look, noise is very emotional. You know, you and I might think if you live in a busy city, you might think what's, <laughs> you might think something noisy is not if, you know, as compared to someone who lives in the bush. Right. So I'd say noise is very much subjective or emotional as well. It could be measured in decibels, but most people don't know what decibels are, right? Nor should they, they They just know what they think is noisy or not. So um, I think with a lot of these issues, they aren't, noise I would say isn't black and white. Safety is black and white. I think <laughs> you're safe or you're not, right? People are getting hurt or they're not, right? So safety is black and white. I think noise is more dynamic and privacy is another one that is more dynamic. And when we were designing the system, we knew going back to that analogy earlier, flying over homes of people who aren't our customers, we had to build a system that certainly at the very least could meet the safety laws, or excuse me, the privacy laws in Australia. And those exist in Australia is unique. There's privacy laws both at a you know a state level and a commonwealth level. But in addition to just meeting the privacy laws and standards, we also had to meet the pub test, if you will, right too, because we're we're flying over people's homes. So we designed a system, we built a system that flies autonomously. So there's no live feed from a camera on the drone back to our pilots. And I didn't touch on this very much early on, but our drones do fly autonomously. We have one pilot overseeing all of our drones in the air at any given time. That pilot isn't flying the drones at all. They don't have the ability to. They're just monitoring the system. And that pilot can't see anything. So the pilot can't pull up, say, a video feed from one drone or another. They don't have that ability to. And because the system is operating autonomously, they don't have the need to either. You know, when that drone is doing a delivery, it's using a number of sensors to make sure the area below is clear. It's not being visually verified by an operator before that delivery commences. So um, we, we built a system that didn't rely on vision to navigate, right? And that's different than most drones. So most drones have cameras because they're taking photography, 
they're needed for navigation, but most drones aren't doing what we're doing, flying over densely populated areas. In our case, we built a system that didn't rely on, 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 on pilot or vision or pilot needing vision. Um, so when people understand that, you know, in most drones, what hangs under the belly of a drone is a camera. On our drone, what hangs under the belly of the drone is the actual package we're delivering. Um, so it's just built differently, and we built it in a way to account for the fact that we'd be operating over people's homes. Yeah, that, that's a that's a very good point about the cameras, Jesse. With the some technical questions uh, about the your fleet, weather dependent um, height. Um, there's always a wind warning I get with my little drone when I fly too high, and also do you fly at night? So how um, how how able uh, is your fleet in different weather conditions and at night? Yeah. Very good question. So we, we fly a weatherized drones. We fly in the rain. We have a pretty high wind tolerance. Um, for context, we operate in Helsinki, which gets pretty cold and snowy. We operate in, in you know, Queensland, which gets pretty hot. So um, we're, we're pretty all weatherized. And that's important because we're delivering to people, you know, when it's raining, that's generally when more people might need or want delivery as an example. So um, that's, that's, we, we operate in, in most weather, although yes, we, win, we are wind tolerant, but it's a pretty high tolerance. Where going back to some legacy rules in aviation, where today we can't operate is sometimes during low visibility. And it's not because we have a miniaturized pilot on our drone. Um, it's just a legacy aviation rule. You know, if, if, if airplanes aren't taking off at the airport because of visibility, we sometimes can't as well. And that's not because the drone can't handle it from a a flying perspective or tech, any technical reasons. It's just there are some aviation limits to flying with visibility. And this is one of those classic examples where the rule just isn't really fit for what we're doing. That rule was written for piloted aviation. Obviously, we don't have visibility <laughs> issues for a drone that's flying itself. So, but that's an example of where, where you know, where we might, we could maybe handle the weather, the wind or the rain, but if the visibility is really bad, our drones can't take off. Um, we don't fly at night at the moment, but again, that's not a technical, that's not for technical reasons. Um, that is for regulatory at the moment. And it, I, as I mentioned, we have to prove safety cases. I think that would be a relatively straightforward safety case to prove. We just haven't done it yet. You know, as an example, we're operating at these shopping centers. Most of the shopping centers, they're open during daylight hours, right? So right now we're operating to meet the needs of our merchants and at the moment, night isn't the biggest priority, but I think in due time, we'll get there. Thanks for the support from Ratio Consultants, an independent voice and trusted partner in planning, urban design, transport, and waste management. Ratio supports change through projects that shape cities, neighborhoods, and places for people. See ratio.com.au for details. And Jesse, so far the pilot programs have been predominantly in rural areas and suburban areas. What are the challenges or I guess even opportunities with higher density areas? Yeah. I, so look, I, you know, I would probably characterize a city like Logan, you know, the Gold Coast, Springfield, Ipswich. They're not urban. They're not CBD urban, obviously, right? It's not like, you know, I wouldn't call Logan, the, you know, Collins Street, right, in terms of that. But, but we are in high densely populated areas. And I think it wouldn't be hard to fly a drone in the CBD, right? It wouldn't be hard for a drone to avoid buildings. It wouldn't be hard. It's, it's not that that is significantly more difficult to do in that type of environment. But, you know, for what we're solving for, I think we are solving for so much more in these high densely populated suburban urban areas. So if you live in a 40-story apartment building 
and the grocery stores on the bottom level are a block away, are we really solving for that much? If you are walking distance to the shop you're trying to go to, I would argue maybe not. I'm sure it's a nice luxury, right? Sure. And I'm not saying people don't get food delivery in big buildings, but ultimately um, where the time savings is going to be better, where the societal value in taking car trips off the road and reducing emissions is going to be better, where that safety will be most important is, is I think largely in the markets we're in. Logan has the same, I like Logan as an example for a number of reasons, but because so many other parts of the world look like it, you know, again, like smaller cities just on the outskirts of larger cities, but Logan has the same, a rough same population as like New Orleans, uh, as, as it, it's, there's a lot of places that look like Logan around the world and we do really well there. So while I think we could solve the technical challenges of operating in the heart of a CBD, um, you start to look at the use cases a little bit and think, is this the best use or the best fit for it? And maybe in due time it will, but I think for us right now, you know, for the centers we're operating from and the types of deliveries we're doing, we're in a really good spot. So that's just, you know, simply been where our focus is. And as I mentioned, we're just in Southeast Queensland right, right now. I think there's other capital cities where the suburban areas surrounding them could do well with drone delivery. So I think that will be our focus in the near term. Um, and in due time, you know, it might be another company that has a solution for the city that's better oriented for that. It might be we tackle that. But I think for right now, we're probably in a good spot in, in the type of delivery we're doing. And again, that's because not every, you know, every vehicle is not meant to do everything. I think our drone is doing what it does best, delivery in high densely populated suburban areas. And Jesse, uh, we might, might not be involved in these areas, but um, it, the drone service has fantastic uh, role to play in inspections of infrastructure, you know, difficult to assess infrastructure, towers, bridges, all sorts of things, and also rescue services. We've talked in a previous interview with a land surveyor who told us that drones have incredible uh, role to play in land surveying. Do, had, is Wing involved in any of those things? And do you just want to talk a little bit about the, the magic of drones for those sort of hard to do things. Yeah. So I, I think the magic, I think delivery is one piece of a much larger ecosystem. I think the idea of using drones for surveying work is incredible considering the alternative for spraying crops for doing, there's so many use cases where, you know, at mines in, in delivery, there's so many great use cases where if a drone is replaced in, in photography for movies, you have a lot of shots now that typically helicopters might've accomplished. Right? When you're replacing a helicopter with a drone that is so much safer, that is so much less expensive, <laughs> that is so much more efficient, you can redo shots over and over again. Um, I think there's so many different great use cases for drones, but they're all built to do what they're built to do. No different than going back to that er earlier example. You know, A bus is built to move a lot of people. A car is built to move a few people. A bike is built to move one person. Our drone is built to accomplish this one very thing. So, and, and a lot of design went into that and thinking went behind it. And it's not, it, we, we haven't built this particular aircraft in a way where it could be, because we fly fast, that's what we do well at low altitudes. That's not necessarily great for surfing work at the speeds we travel, as an example. So, um, you know, I just like for vehicles for day-to-day -day work, I, I strongly advocate matching drones, matching these aviation vehicles to the work they're meant to do. Because what, there's no reason you need a one-size-fits-all one solution, just like you wouldn't need that for people transportation, as an example. So um, our drone is built for that very one thing. We do that very one thing very well. And I think you have other drones built for, you know, for purpose, and that's okay, and that's good. 
I think it's much better that way than trying to use one thing to have too many things. Just just an example, Jesse, on that infrastructure. I mean, inspecting, you know, big dams, the faces of dams, I've seen drones are now used to, to you know, to get up close and also photograph and then go back 12 months and photograph again, yeah. looking for any sort of cracks or, and that can be analyzed. So uh, again, the magic of drones, I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself. I love them, Jesse. The precision is great. You can program that route so it gets the same exact photo from the same exact spot every time. You know, if you're doing surveying work manually with a handheld camera, you might be close, right? But maybe you're, you're a meter over or a meter over, you know, or that X marks the spot has, adjust, X marks the spot has adjusted. You can program a drone to be so precise. So doing that, that overtime surveying work, it, it becomes more precise, right? I think there's total benefits there. Along the way, you can use drones to monitor for air quality, right? At the heights they're flying or where they are to take those, you've mentioned dams, you use drones to collect water samples deep into say a lake or a pond where before you might've been sending someone out on a boat to do it. So um, I, I think there's, a, I think the solutions, the possibilities are endless and it's such a new industry. So we're yet to see you know, aviation's come a long way from, you know, the Wright brothers to the A380. I think with drones, we're still at that very early stage. So it's exciting to think 20 years from now, what some of these new aircraft might be doing. I think, I think some of this, the things aren't, haven't even been thought of yet, but they're going to get there. I was just about to ask where to from here, but we've sort of kind of already covered on the, on that now. <laughs> oh, I think that's a good question, Jess. I mean, I, I yeah. think for drone delivery, I'll speak to drone delivery. I think for drone delivery, Sooner than later, not just our company, I might add, you're going to see other companies offering delivery. It's just the, it's, this is the fastest way to deliver a small package. This is the safest way to deliver a small package, the most environmentally friendly way to deliver a small package. This is the most cost-effective way to deliver a small package. Last mile delivery has just exploded in the past few years, and COVID has only advanced that. And you have a lot of cities, and you're both planning experts, you would, right? Typically, Buildings were built with one loading dock, which made sense. Nobody designed buildings 20, 30 years ago or curb or curbside space 20, 30 years ago thinking everyone's going to have all these things delivered by car, right? That just wasn't in the mix. So you have all this explosion in last mile delivery, which is already expensive and complicated in a system that it wasn't built for. I think drones just provide not to take it all over, but they will augment and supplement in a smart way last mile delivery in a society not just here in Australia, but in a number of places that it's just growing year over year, not shrinking. So I think, and there's some other great companies doing drone delivery. I'd mentioned Swoop Arrow who are based in Victoria. You have big companies, you have small companies all looking at this problem and coming up with different solutions. And I think you'll start to see not in the coming decades, maybe even the coming months and years where more cities will have this, where the concept will become less foreign, where over time, companies like ours and others, when they're operating safely and they're not overly noisy, where they're demonstrating that they're providing a valuable service to a city, that it's just going to grow over time. No different than cars did. You know, I've been told it took something like 20 years for cars to be accepted by society. You know, I think drones will take a quicker path than that. But um, nonetheless, right, it's the beginning of a journey of, of proving it out, of community acceptance, of of innovation of trying, failing, trying again, operating differently, but that's happening pretty quickly. And again, we're seeing community support. We're seeing support from different levels of government. So I think it will be sooner than later where, whether it's a wing delivery drone or another companies, where they're going to start to show up in, in, you know, across the country and across the world. Well, that's a, that's a great summary, Jesse. Thank, thank you for that. Now, 
Now we're off drones, or we, we still might be talking about drones, but we're now at Podcast Extra or Culture Corner, Jesse, where we ask our guest something they've read, seen, watched, listened to, experienced that might be of interest to our listeners. Sure. Any recommendations? Yeah, well, in thinking about your listeners, uh, knowing there's a big planning crowd who I, w- I would imagine be listening each week, I'm going to give maybe an answer people have heard before. It might seem a little cliche, both from a planning perspective and the fact that uh, I'm Australian, but I'm also American. But um, you know, I grew up in, I was born in New York City. And as I'd mentioned earlier, I'd worked in politics for a long time. And just now have I started in my career, have I started getting into planning a bit due to the fact that, right, as I mentioned earlier, I'm working with planning offices at cities regarding, um, you know, locations our drones are taking after. So um, knowing that I'm an American, knowing that I have a political background, knowing that I'm studying and looking at planning more and more, um, I picked up, (laughs) this will sound, I'm laughing because it will be cliche, but um, I'm just about finished with The Power Broker, which is the Robert Caro uh, nonfiction book about Robert Moses and how, you know, and the, the building and the design of modern New York City. And it took a while because it's a humongous book. It's very long and it's physically heavy. So I don't travel with the book. I have little kids at home, so it's hard to read. But I've been piece by piece, chapter by chapter, working through this great book, which covers all of these elements, town planning, entire city, imagination of what cities look like, political power and the use of it. Um, and so I've been, I've been reading The Power Broker, and I imagine for a subset of your listeners who might not be familiar with it, um, I'm sure about 80% would be, but for the 20% who might not be, um, <laughs> take, take a really big, you know, take a backpack with a lot of padding, I'd say buy a copy of The Power Broker and work your way through it. It's a fascinating story about the planning and the building of modern New York and the politics behind it uh, with Robert Moses. Terrific recommendation, Jesse. Um, Jess, your podcast extra. Yes, mine this week is not a book. Um, Netflix show called The Days, um, which is the true story of the Fukushima disaster or nuclear disaster that occurred in 2011. Um, so that was the tragedy triggered by the earthquake and tsunami um, that struck that northeastern coast of Japan. So that's been really interesting. It's a couple of episodes. Um, I'm only the first one through, but um, really interesting so far. What about you, Pete? Well, that, I've been to that area, uh, Jess, in Japan, and um, the devastation from the tsunami and earthquake mm. was, I think, 28,000 people lost their lives. Mm, massive. Um, and they're building a massive seawall. But the inter- interesting thing about Fukushima is that it didn't fail. There was no escape. You know I'm a big fan of nukes, Jess. So um, there was no escape from the reactor, which is incredible. So, um, But mine is Fowder, Jess, and... Um, I don't know, Jesse, have you ever seen Fowder? It's on Netflix. I don't watch much Netflix, but it's an Israeli production about a special team of counterterrorism agents in Israel. Uh, it's The program's very popular across the Middle East, not just in Israel, because it shows both sides of the coin. It shows um, the people who are plotting against the um, uh, both sides, and it's very intense and it's I wouldn't say sympathetic to both sides but it shows a lot of the nuances so it's not all black hats and white hats so um Fowder uh series four uh Fowder in Arabic means chaos it is um 
outstanding program and gives you a little bit of the understanding of the the complexities um, of the Middle East. Um, that one keeps coming up on my suggested list, so I'll definitely. Um, well, definitely well, Jess, I, I, Jesse, I, I don't like violence. I can't watch anything violent. There is a bit of violence in this, of course, but uh, it's just gripping drama. Um, but if you're going to start, Jess, I'd go right back to the start because it's um, it, it's very good, very high quality TV. Jesse, any final message to our listeners? No, I just want to thank. Uh, Peter and Jess, thank you both for your time. This has been a really exciting conversation. Based on both your recommendations, I'm glad I work in <laughs> the simple world of drone delivery and not Middle East peace or nuclear uh, energy. So um, I'm gonna follow up on both though. I think they're both good, good recommendations, but thank you both for affording me the opportunity to talk about wing and drone delivery. And I really appreciate it. And thanks and for your time. It's been a really, really interesting conversation. I know I've, I've certainly learned a lot T terrific as always, Jess. All, all the best. Thanks, Jesse. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you would like to hear more of our podcasts, hit the follow button on Spotify or the like button on SoundCloud or the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts. Please also visit our Instagram page, LinkedIn or website for behind the scenes footage of our podcasts and to get the latest on upcoming or recently released episodes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please get in touch via our social media channels or by emailing planningexchange at gmail.com. A special shout out also to Jack Babbage, who does such an incredible job in producing this podcast.